Good morning. My name is Brian Meesmer. I'm one of the elders here at Columbia Presbyterian Church. Um, I've had the joy and honor to preach to you a few times before, and we'll do it again today. And I have selected Psalm 13, a Davidic psalm, as the text for this morning. So if you can turn in your Bibles to Psalm 13, um, you might be familiar with the first line, How long, O Lord? Something we say uh, from time to time, something we probably heard from time to time. And uh, we, will, we will look at the first, really the only the six verses. And my prayer this morning is that that title will not be turned around against me, how long, O'Brien, until you sit down. So let's read Psalm 13. We don't know the occasion, actually, of the psalm, uh, which makes it even more applicable to us. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. Let us pray. Father, you are with us. You promise to be with us. You promise to be with us always, and you are with us now in this worship service. Lord, make yourself known to us, we pray, for we are fertile ground for your word. In your son's name we pray, amen. So most of us will be familiar with what are called coming-of-age rituals. Perhaps some of us have even engaged in that ourselves. I think in American cultures we're familiar with what's called the Sweet 16 party, right? It's a 16-year-old birthday party. You invite all your friends, and that kind of marks your coming-of-age in American culture. But there are a variety of coming-of-age rituals in in a lot of different cultures. Um, One that might come to mind in, in kind of the Jewish setting would be the Bar Bat Mitzvah where at age 13 you were welcomed into adulthood. Or in Latin culture, it's the quinceanera, which is in some ways similar to the Sweet Sixteen Party. I've been told that in, in some of the Native American cultures of this continent, there was a similar ceremony called a vision quest. Uh, perhaps you've heard of this, perhaps you haven't. In their culture, uh, it would be a marker point between adolescence and adulthood, and once you've completed this quest, you would be considered an adult in, in the culture. And it, it was rather intense, actually, because what you were doing is you were being sent out into the wilderness alone, by yourself, without aid, uh, without any help, sometimes miles and miles away from the camp. And you were sent there to hear a word, a, a spiritual word that could guide your life going forward. And sometimes you're actually required to stay in the wilderness until you got that word. And, you know, to send a 13-year-old out into the wilderness like that, I'm sure some of you who are 13 today are like, that would be the best thing that could ever happen to me. But others of you, and maybe the parents in the room, are like, I don't know if I'd ever want to do that. But yeah, it it was something that would happen, and they would receive this message, and once they came back with the message, they would uh, be considered an adult. But I choose that analogy because the imagery seems fitting to me for where a lot of us could be this morning. Alone, isolated, depressed, scared, in the wilderness, metaphorically. And that can eat us down. And that's where I think King David is here in Psalm 13. And that's why I think he asked the question, how long, O Lord? And that he is in a sense of isolation, that he feels the lack of God's presence and blessing on his life. And if any of us have felt that, which I know we have, it's been this year, 
It's been through the many trials of the year of 2020. I asked my wife as I was writing this sermon to say, hey, what's a good illustration for Psalm 13? And immediately she looked back at me and said, 2020, (laughs) right? It seems like it's one thing after another after another where we pray back to God, how long? How long will you let this go on? And, and, And the first thing I want to show you here is this series of questions from King David. It's not original. Actually, he's playing off of something here. There are four questions. Uh, Will you forget me? Will you hide your face from me? Must I be alone and take counsel alone? Um, Will my enemy be exalted over me? And and Spurgeon, the the great British preacher, called this the howling psalm because if you say how long over and over again, you can try it later, how long, how long, how long, how long. It sounds like a howl, and that's what it's meant to convey. But David David is smart. David knows his Old Testament, doesn't he? And, And If you'll remember, if you're familiar, in number six, when God is instituting the people of Israel after Egypt, he pronounces over them what's called the Aaronic Blessing. The Aaronic Blessing in number six. You're familiar with this. We've probably done this a couple times as a benediction. But it goes something like this. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you. And the Lord give you peace. This is the blessing, this is the word, the reality that was pronounced over God's people from time immemorial to now. And and you can almost see the way David writes Psalm 13, he's got this in mind, right? The Lord bless you and keep you. Will you forget me forever? The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. How long will you hide your face from me? The Lord lift up his countenance upon you. How long must I take counsel in my soul? And be sorrowful all the day. And the Lord give you peace. How long, O Lord, must my enemy reign over me? This is a challenge, in a sense, to God. And it is a challenge of, I feel no longer God's presence. Some of us feel that way. I think a lot of us have felt that way from time to time this year. I know that I have felt that way. And it's kind of like a minor key. In music, we, you have what's called a major key and a minor key. And the major key is a bit more bright and, and shiny. And the minor key sounds a bit more eerie. And, and I wish I could kind of sing for you, but I won't do that this morning. But this is the minor key of the ironic blessing. It's a bit of a call and response to God. And it's a bold question, actually. I mean, if we don't shudder a bit when we hear David or Habakkuk say, how long, O Lord? If we don't shudder with the audacity of that question, we should. Because it's bold. Because it's risky. Because it seems like we're challenging God. But you'll see here, and you'll see in other places in Scripture, this question is completely valid. It's completely okay to ask the Lord, how long? How do I know this? In Habakkuk 2, which which we read earlier, and we'll actually sing this uh, at the end of today's service, um, Habakkuk says, how long, O Lord? And God actually gives him an answer. God validates the question by answering him. We also know that this question is okay because of what happens in Revelation 6. At the end of time, the martyred saints are crying out before the altar of God and say, how long, O Lord, until you avenge us? And if that's what the perfected saints in heaven are saying, then certainly we can as well. And so this is a good question. It's okay to ask this question. It's okay to feel this from time to time. And and I'll note that with this feeling comes, I think, three symptoms. And we can see these in kind of the rest of verses 1 and 2 here. Um, The first is, how long must I take counsel in my soul? The NIV actually translates it better, or I like it better. It says, how long must I wrestle with my thoughts? 
We've done that. <laughs> it's, you, know, you know that feeling, I think, that to be back and forth within your own head, to not have a reference point, to not have a mediator to come and say, no, it's this and not that. And when God withdraws his presence from us, or at least when we feel he is, we're alone. We're alone with our thoughts. The imagery is that of a kingly court, actually. How long must I take counsel? Uh, King David would have been familiar with this. He would have walked into his courtroom or his court, and he would have had all his counselors and advisors around him. And he would say, what should we do with this? Or what's our war policy? Or what's our money policy? And he would get a call and response. Any of you who have been in leadership probably have felt this before, right? To have advisors around you, much like the prime minister or the president might have. And, and imagine for a second if you're a leader and you walk into your boardroom or you walk into your court, wherever that is, and you have nothing there. And David's saying, I don't have anything to ground me here. And the second thing that follows from this, maybe you'll know that this is true, is when that happens, when we feel that we have to wrestle with our thoughts, it, it usually leads to sorrow. All the day, says David, without your blessing upon me, I feel sorrow all the day. And again, I know this, I know this is true of myself. Some of us have felt that over the last six months. An intense sense of sorrow and loneliness. And then there's the third thing here, right? There's the feeling that my enemy is winning. Again, I don't know about you, but I think this is true. We really feel that an enemy is winning this year. And maybe you've always felt that way, but specifically this year, and I don't know who your enemy is, but it really feels like the enemy is winning. Whether that's the coronavirus, whether that's systemic racism and injustice, whether that's financial instability, it feels like it's going wrong. And, and you know what's interesting is I was flipping through the Psalms, I kind of almost read every Psalm trying to find this. How, how does God speak about those kind of things, those big systems that affect us? Well, the Psalms do speak about injustice, but more often than not, they talk about an enemy. The enemy is out to get me. And if you look at all of these different psalms of lament, you'll see usually King David personalizing this. There is an enemy who prowls around to get me. And I personally found that very helpful this year to be able to look at systemic racism or the coronavirus and say, it's not just this big blob out there that's out to do harm. It's that there's an adversary behind that. There's Satan behind those things and Satan can be vanquished by God. But you'll see, you'll see these are the three symptoms of, of isolation, of depression, and of the enemy winning. So that's David's complaint. We can look secondly at his prayer. And that's what we'll find in verses um, four, 3 and 4. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. I'm a counselor by profession. That's what I do for a living. And uh, the first thing they'll teach you in counseling school on day one is there's a difference between content and process. Content and process. The content is what's said. It's, it's, if we were to put a transcription of what I'm saying today, that would be the content. And it's good to analyze that. The process is how that statement is said. So, for example, <laughs> if someone comes up to you and says, wow, I really just hate you. I just hate everything about you. There's a dissonance between content and process. Content is one of hatred. The process is one of sweetness. And you're going to kind of feel weird about that. And we can look at David's prayer in verses 3 and 4, and we can examine both the content and the process. I think both are equally important. What's the content? The content is David is praying God's promises back to him. 
The content is David is leaning on what he knows to be true about God in the Aaronic blessing in 2 Samuel 7, in, in Genesis 17, and taking that saying, Lord, you promised this. Lord, you said you would do this, and so I'm going to pray this back to you. And some of us need to do that today, I suspect. Some of us need to really dig into God's promises and pray them back to him. Uh, there's a thing going around now called spiritual deconstruction. Maybe you're familiar with it, maybe you're not. It's taken a lot of big celebrity pastors or YouTubers or things like that. And what they do, the idea is that what we believe about God needs to be deconstructed. I grew up in the wrong family, I grew up in the wrong culture, and I've got wrong beliefs about God, and so I need to break that all down, get a blank slate, and start from the beginning. Now, some of that's true. I think for all of us, in some degree, we've got wrong beliefs about God, or we think uh, wrongly about who he is and, and what he's doing in the world. But, but some of that can be destructive, too. If we just throw, literally, the baby out with the bathwater in that sense, we've seen people walk away from the faith. We've seen pastors who books we read growing up who are no longer Christians because of a kind of deconstruction here. And what I think David's doing here is, is there's a difference between uh, good and bad deconstruction. And what is that? Good spiritual deconstruction washes away what I think is true about God and goes back to what God says is true about him. So again, that's the content. Here's the process. And I think to illustrate the process of David's prayer, I actually have to invite you for a second into my marriage. Um, so my wife, Nicole's not here. She was in the first service. But, um, and, and maybe some of you can relate to this. Here's how 75% of the arguments in my family go. This is how it goes. It starts with me. Sweetheart, why aren't you doing A, B, and C? Did, didn't we agree that you would do A, B, and C? Uh, you know, we talked about that. We talked about that in the marriage counseling session last week. Why, why are you not doing that? <laughs> and my wife, with a smile on her face, will respond and say, actually, Brian, here's five times I did A. Here's three times I did B. And I was planning to do C tomorrow, right? And you're like, oh, okay, huh. I wonder how I missed that. What? Why, why did I miss that? And if I'm smart, which I'm usually not, I should quit there, right? Uh, but what inevitably happens is, okay, okay, so she did A, B, and C. Oh, yeah, uh, honey, what about X, Y, and Z? You know, everyone else is doing X, Y, and Z. Why aren't we doing X, Y, and Z? And it's the same answer, right? Well, actually, Brian, I have been doing X, Y, and Z. I'm kind of concerned at this point that you're not seeing that, right? And, you know, that's not to validate where my sinful heart is at that point. But it is to say, hey, look at the process, Right? I'm taking what I think is supposed to be true about my wife, I'm bringing it to her, and I'm receiving a response. And I think, if we're going to explain how David gets from verse 1, how long, O Lord, to verses 5 and 6, but I have trusted in your steadfast love, it involves a process, and it involves a process of back and forth. Back and forth, back and forth. This is what you say is true, I don't feel it. And, and, and you, know, you can almost see David's eyes widen. Lord, will you forget me forever? But, but you did select me out of the sons of Jesse. Lord, will you let my enemy gloat over me? But you slayed Goliath for me. Will, will I sleep the sleep of death? You saved me from the hand of Saul, and you promised to make me into a great nation. And, and as David does that, what's happening? He's becoming mindful of the character of God. He's becoming mindful of who the Lord is for him, and his eyes widen. If you want more evidence of that, flip over to Psalm 22. You'll, you'll be familiar with some of this. Again, this is a Davidic psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you know this phrase. This is what Jesus cries out on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? 
Actually, you know, honestly, and this is true of me, that that's about as far as I get in that psalm sometimes. I don't actually read the thing through. But do you know how Psalm 22 ends? It ends with a crescendo of praise to God. And you're like, okay, 30 verses. How did you get from you have forsaken me to from you comes my praise in the great generation? The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. How, how do you get there? That seems way too fast. Well, one quick point. The Psalms weren't written in a day. Some of them were. But sometimes I wonder, maybe David took 10 years to write Psalm 13 or Psalm 22. Maybe it took him 50 years. Maybe it took him 30 seconds. I don't know. But do you see what happens in Psalm 22? And I like the way the ESV lays it out because you can see the shifts. It's a back and forth process. My God, why have you forsaken me? Verse three, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. But I am a worm, not a man. All who see me mock me. Yet you took me from my mother's womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. And it's back and forth and back and forth until it kind of reaches a crescendo here. And if anything, that validates the question, right? But it also validates the process. I don't know where some of you are this morning. Maybe some of you are in verse 1. That's okay. You don't get to verse 5 without being in verse 1. So that's David's complaint. That's his prayer. Let's, let's, let's kind of lock this in here. How does David get to a place of deliverance, of praising God, of singing of his great salvation just moments ago before he was you know, lost? Well, there's two sermons I think you could preach here, right? Um, I heard somebody preach it this way the other day. Um, they would focus on verse 5, on the first two words of verse 5. But I... But I have trusted in your steadfast love. And the point this preacher made, I think it's good. I just don't think it gets us all the way. The point they made was, we have a choice. We have a choice to remember that God is good. And so that's on us to go back, to go to our Bibles, to pull it out, to shift our thinking, um, to work on a, you know, a more positive attitude here and lean back into God. That's true. I think you need to, some of us need to be doing that today. But I'm not sure that gets us all the way across the finish line. Because if you look at the way the language is, the focus is not on me here. The focus is actually on God. I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. And so what do we need? What do we need when we feel God's blessing has been removed? When we feel his presence is gone? Isn't it to see that God is good? Isn't it to see that God is good to me? That's the question behind the question. Right? It's one thing to ask God, where are you? But the deeper level question there is, God, are you good? And do you love me? And I think David needed to see that God is good. And so where do I think, if, 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 if I were David, where would I have gone in Scripture to remember that? It would have been 2 Samuel 7. You, you don't have to turn there right now. But in 2 Samuel 7, that's where God makes covenant with David. And that's where God comes to him and says, your people, David, will find rest. I will make you into a great house. I will give you peace. Someone will be on your throne forever. It's this moment in Scripture. It's one of the great covenant-making moments in Scripture where God appears, or doesn't quite appear to David, and says, this is what's going to be true for you. And I think that's what David does. I think he goes back to that moment of goodness with the Lord, of intimacy with the Lord, and says, ah, this is, this is God. I can sing about that now. I can sing about that now. 
Uh, if you're familiar with Pilgrim's Progress, the uh, allegory written by John Bunyan, um, it's very old but very good. Uh, there's a scene which the two main characters, one's named Christian, the other's named Hopeful. Um, remember, it's an allegory. They're captured by a giant called Despair. And Despair has chained them up. Despair has put them in his dungeon, and Despair visits them every day during normal working hours and tries to get them to renounce their faith and tries to make them sad and tries to get them to give up, essentially. And this goes on day after day after day after day. After about seven days, Christian has this, this epiphany, and he says, wait a second, this entire time I've had a key in my shirt, and that key is called promise, and that key will open up every door in the castle of the giant of despair. And he pulls the key out, and he unlocks his chains and unlocks the door, and they walk free. Now, if I was hopeful, I think I would be pretty angry with Christian for not remembering that six days earlier. But doesn't that show us uh, how impatient we are with those who suffer? if that's the reaction in my heart, that sometimes we forget about those things. And so what we need, what we need personally is to see that God is good to us. Now, you might be saying, I wish I had a covenant. (laughs) I wish God had appeared to me and promised me that someone would be on my throne forever. I'm glad you asked that question, actually, because God did give you a covenant, and it's a better one. And it's the one initiated and founded by the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we need an answer for why God is good or if God is good, there is one answer to that question, and it is at Calvary. And it is at the point where Jesus, who is fully God, took on our humanity, lived a perfect life, and died a death for our sins, where he would hang on the cross and he would say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And at that point, he really felt it. If anyone could be said to have felt the abandonment of God, the lack of God's presence, it was Christ on the cross. And he did that so that you would never have to feel that way. So that united to him by faith, God can never turn his shining face away from us, even though it may feel like it from time to time. The the logic is inescapable here, actually. Because we are justified in Christ, in Romans 8, Paul will say, if he did not spare his son... If he did not spare his most if the father did not spare his most valued possession for us, how can he not give us all good things? And the logic is there. So if you need the reminder that God is good, you go to Calvary. But it doesn't end there because what does Calvary secure for us? Calvary secures for us God's fatherly affection. We're adopted. One of the legal terms that we use when we talk about justification is adoption. It means God becomes our heavenly father. And he becomes our perfect heavenly father. And he he is gracious to us. And he is present with us. And he is quick to give our blessings. Quick to bless and slow to chide. And when we realize that, we know that God is good. And and look at Romans 8 again. I'll I'll go a little bit uh, earlier in that passage. Verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear but you have received the spirit of adoptions as sons or daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That we, you know the word Abba there is a word of intimacy. It's a word of connection. It's a word of presence. Abba, Father, we can cry that now because of what Christ has done and we know that Jesus will never leave us. And the spirit bears witness to this, doesn't he? The spirit brings this into our heart and reminds us of this. And the spirit reminds us what? We are God's children. We are his, and he can no wise cast us off that he can deny himself. And then what's at the end of verse 17? I I, I didn't notice this until just today. 
Provided what? Provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. So if God is good, if he is good, then there's one last question to answer. Then why would he let this happen? Why would he let me feel his absence? Why would he take away his blessing from me? That, that's a really good question to ask because that's the next logical question in the series here. And specifically for you this morning, I can't answer that question. I suspect that uniquely for each of you, there's a specific reason. You don't know it, I don't know it. But, but I can't speak generally to that. Why would God allow this to happen? Well, again, I'll share it in terms of an analogy. So I wasn't entirely truthful with you about my initial opening analogy of the vision quest, actually because there's a very important part I left out. And some of you parents might have picked up on that. I wouldn't send my 13-year-old out into the wilderness alone, right? Well, neither would the Native Americans who practiced this, actually. Because unbeknownst to the child, as they tracked into the, the deep darkness of, of the American wilderness, their father followed behind without them knowing. And what would happen is that their father, who would be an expert tracker or who would just be better at hiding than them, would follow them at a, at a, a slower pace. And while the child camped in the wilderness under a tree during the wind or the rain or the storms or under threat of wild beast, the father was always there watching. The father was always there waiting to save. The kid just didn't know it. And isn't, isn't that our heavenly father in a sense, right? Isn't that him that behind this frowning, behind this uh, providence we experience, he hides his smiling face? And isn't that what we just sang in the John Newton hymn, God answers prayers with crosses? God does this to us so that we grow in grace in him because he loves us. Sometimes with the vision quest, they actually wouldn't send the father out. Um, you might ask, why is that? Well, you know, those, again, those of you your parents might know that. What's the hardest thing for you to do as a parent? It's to watch your child suffer. <laughs> it's to watch them fail. It's to watch them be scared. And I suspect what started happening is the parents in this situation would rescue their, their child too soon. And they would, you know, they would not let the process complete itself. And so then they'd have to start all over again. And so they'd send an uncle or somebody else uh, from the community uh, who was a little bit more dispassionate, a little bit less connected. And those of you who are parents, again, can know this. What's the one thing that can keep you from saving your child in a situation like that? What's, what's the absolute, as much pain as that could bring to you, what's that one thing? It's the promise of maturity. It's the promise that if I let this go on a bit longer, they will become perfect. They will become better. They will become an adult. And that's what our Heavenly Father does in these moments. He hasn't left you. It feels very acutely like he left you. It may be hard to trace his hand through providence here, but he has not left you. He is growing you into the image of his son. And that is what he is about, is it not? To conform you to the image of Christ. So this, I think, is how David goes from how long, O Lord, will you forget me? to I will sing of the Lord forever. This is not the only passage on sorrow and despair. There's much, much more uh, context we can add to that today, but this is what I think David says here. Isn't this wonderful? Isn't, isn't this wonderful? Let's pray. Father, we call out and we know that you hear. We know that you hear because your son makes it so. 
that because he intercedes for us in the heavenly places, you cannot turn your face away from us, Lord, that your fatherly affection for us is secure and certain. And so for that today, Lord, we praise you. For that today, Lord, we thank you and we grasp it feebly by faith. Lord, help us to see it more and more and more. It's in your son's name we pray today. Amen.